One of the oldest and most enduring stories of the human family, and I know you know this story, it tells the story of a young boy, probably a teenager, who becomes a hero in a totally unexpected way. This young teenage boy, whose name is David, is staying at home while his older brothers are off at war. He's too young to be in the army. His people, who are called the Israelites, are camped out ready for battle across from their enemy, the Philistines. Now the Philistines have a champion named Goliath, who for 40 days in a row comes out to taunt the Israelites and to challenge them to send a champion out to fight with him. But nobody wants to go. And so for 40 days he comes out, taunts them, and then goes back. So this teenage boy named David arrives in the camp to bring food for his brothers who are in the army. And while he's there, he sees Goliath come out to taunt the Israelites. And he says, I will go fight the giant. I'm volunteering. And they all think he's lost his senses. But finally, since there's nobody else who's willing to go, King Saul says, all right, you can go fight him. And I'll give you my armor, by the way this heavy-duty armor, and the boy says, no, I don't want any armor, and he doesn't have a sword either. He has a slingshot. So according to the story, David goes over to the little brook near where they're camped, and he gathers five smooth stones, and he puts them in his pouch, and he goes out to meet Goliath. And, of course, Goliath laughs at him and calls him names. But David answers back bravely and says that the God of his people will give him the victory. And so as they come together, David places one of his stones in his sling, and he launches it directly at Goliath's head, and the giant falls to the ground, stunned. Whereupon David grabs Goliath's sword, and according to the legend, cuts off his head. And the Israelites go delirious with joy, and David becomes a hero of his people, and eventually becomes the king of Israel. He becomes the author of what, at least traditionally thought of as the author of the book of Psalms in the Bible, which are songs that he, at least according to legend, composed. And he becomes a a famous doer of many deeds, both good deeds and not so good deeds. So this is the story of David and Goliath. I bet you almost everybody here knew that story. It's a complex legend, and it has some dimensions that are troubling to it, actually. It's not doesn't feel that great to me to glorify battle. And there's also uh, a dubious moral justification for this war that they're involved in. So that's another problem of it. 
And yet, aside from these problems, the story of David and Goliath has really persisted in human culture. And it's become a symbol of any underdog who triumphs over a challenge or a foe that's, that's much, much larger than this underdog person. And so it's used really more these days in a kind of secular sense to mean um, the chance that any underdog has to win. Sports teams use this all the time, but it's not just sports teams. Uh, other movements get identified as David and Goliath kind of movements, like the civil rights movement, for example, was often thought of as David and Goliath. Uh, for the heck of it, I googled Bernie, David, and Goliath and came out with a whole bunch of stuff about Bernie Sanders. <laughs> that is not an endorsement. That's an observation. And so it's a, it's a powerful story. As a matter of fact, Malcolm Gladwell, who is a very insightful author in the world today, wrote The Tipping Point and a bunch of other fascinating books, has written a book called David and Goliath in which he talks about this kind of archetypal situation in human experience. And part of his argument is that when you are in the David role, you actually have a lot more power than you think you do. And he explains why that's true. So I, I recommend that book to you by Malcolm Gladwell. James Luther Adams, who was a Unitarian theologian in the 20th century, and whose words you heard as the opening words this morning, uses the image of the five smooth stones to illustrate what he calls the five elements of religious liberalism, the five elements of religious liberalism. So religious liberalism would include not just UUs, but it could include many other groups that have similar characteristics as the ones that I'm gonna describe for you in just a second. So it's not just a question of UUs, it's a bigger idea that he calls Religious liberalism or being a religious liberal. Now, this, is, this could be one of those things that when people say, what do you use believe? This, this is one of the answers I'm going to give you that is well thought through. The image of using the five smooth stones seems to imply that religious liberals are in some sense like David in being underdogs in the religious world. I'll leave it to you to see if that fits. We also know that um, James Luther Adams wrote these pieces in the historical period around the Second World War, and he certainly was very aware of the role of uh, fascism in the world and uh, uh, liberal democracies. So that's clearly an undertone in his writing as well. So you might keep that in mind. But he is really defining an approach to religion using this image of five smooth stones. And so I want to tell you what he says the five stones are. The first stone comes directly from James Luther Adams, but also from Amy's story. The first stone is what he says the principle that revelation is continuous. Now, we don't use the word revelation very much, but what he says it means is that there is no 
one final complete answer. There is no one final answer for all times and eternity. That the truth is always being born. We are involved in a creative universe where new things are happening all the time. And so there will never be one statement of truth of, for all religion or all meaning or all truth or all justice. It will be a constantly evolving process. And no one will ever completely capture the final truth in words. We're always growing and learning. The Tao Te Ching says the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. I think James Luther Adams would agree with that. When people ask us why we don't have a creed or a specific statement of what we believe, I think the first smooth stone is a good answer to that question. Life is too magnificent and complex to ever be summed up once and for all in any set of words whatsoever, in any language, in any tradition. It will always be growing beyond that. We're part of a creative process that is always unfolding. Every new statement is provisional and every attempt can be criticized. There is no one complete final answer. First stone. The second stone of religious liberalism says that human relations should always be based on mutual consent and not on coercion. So no one should be forced into a situation. It should be by one's free will. Of course, we have to have some rules, like for example, that we go by the traffic lights, you know, or that Maybe kids have to go to school, even if they don't feel like it every morning. And so they're obviously to live together. We have to have some rules that tell us what to do. But the underlying dedication to free choice is a defining characteristic of any community that would be called a liberal religious community. He says that liberal religious communities resist tyranny, including ecclesiastical tyranny. So this would explain why our denomination and other groups as well do not have an ecclesiastical hierarchy. We don't have a hierarchy. We don't have a bishop or anyone like that. We are democratic in our organization. So no authority can tell us what to believe. The minister can't tell us what to believe. Nobody can tell us that because we have that freedom to make those decisions ourselves. Free inquiry and persuasion are the acceptable methods of relationship. These are the methods of relationship that acknowledge the worth and dignity of every person. We're a free church without creed or hierarchy. And we are free to choose our beliefs and associations without coercion. The birth of Unitarianism in Europe actually came out of a a heresy case against a Unitarian named Michael Servetus who was executed. And people said that should never happen again. That should never happen in the world. That's part of our history. That's the second stone. The third stone concerns moral obligation. 
Adam says that we all have a moral obligation to direct our efforts towards a just and loving community. We all have that obligation. He writes, A faith that is not the sister of justice is bound to bring people grief. A faith that is not the sister of justice is bound to bring people grief. He argues that in the Judeo-Christian tradition, both the prophets of the Hebrew Bible and Jesus, the prophet of the New Testament, make this great truth over and over again, this truth of justice, this truth of compassion, this truth of treating people honestly and with integrity. As a matter of fact, later on in the story of David, he has what appears to be a very coercive affair with Bathsheba, a woman who lives next door to his palace, and because he likes her so much, he has her husband killed in battle. He cleverly puts him in the front row of the charge so that he can get killed without him having to do it outright. And the prophet Nathan figures this out and comes to the king and says, you have done wrong. You have done wrong. And he courageously tells the most powerful person in that time that he is morally deficient. So liberal religion must care about justice and it must speak the truth to power. It must be willing to do that. Adam says that if we don't do that, then tyranny will have its way. Tyranny will have a permission card to do whatever it wishes to do. So we have that obligation. The confrontation between Nathan, the prophet, and King David shows how that relationship works. We are all morally bound to pursue both love and justice. And Adams argues that a purely spiritual religion is incomplete, that spiritual insights must be incarnated in the actual flesh and blood world. So that's the third stone. The fourth stone takes this idea of having a moral obligation to live by love and justice, and it carries it further out into the world. And it is for this fourth one, actually, that James Luther Adams is probably most well-known. He, he makes a very interesting argument. He argues that our obligation to pursue justice cannot be pursued just as individuals, even though that's a wonderful thing, but that it also requires organizations and institutions to carry the banner. He says that if, there, if you want to have a movement that will influence human history, then the movement will have to create communities and institutions that will stand for the principles that we believe in. And he says that the right to freely associate is essential to our democratic way of life. We have to be able to join together in organizations that want to do something like Common Cause or Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative or the ACLU, or Voto Latino, or religious communities like ours that exist free of government control and can act independently. 
So what he's saying is that for us to do good works in our own personal life, wonderful though it is, does not usually change the world. And in order to do so, you have to gather together and work together and create organizations. I hate to tell you, but that's what the man says. Adams takes, there's an old verse in the Bible that says, by their works ye shall know them. By their works ye shall know him. That's a third stone uh, Bible verse. And he says that he wants to add, by their associations ye shall know them. So by who we band together with and who we work with, we are known, we are manifested in the world. And that is one of the reasons why joining a church is not a trivial thing to do. Because when we freely associate with a community, we become part of a movement that can have a greater effect on the world. So James Luther Adams made a strong testimony about this dimension. I heard, I, Diane and I heard him speak once. He, he was very elderly in about 1990. And this was a great part of his message is that people have to band together for justice and to create the community of love. And that if we don't do that, even though we may have very good intentions, it probably won't change anything. That's the fourth stone. <clears throat> the fifth and final stone is one of the most fascinating, I think. Adams claims that we as religious liberals affirm that even in a deeply wounded world, such as ours, there are sufficient resources available for us to be optimistic that transformation can take place. Even in a world that is very troubled, very troubled, and every day things come out that hurt our hearts just to hear them, there are sufficient resources available to us in ourselves and our communities and in the nature of the world we live in to be optimistic about the long-range prospects for a more just and healthy world. You could kind of hear this actually in Martin Luther King's image of the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. That's the same kind of optimism. And by the way, Martin Luther King was a religious liberal by all these standards. He would be part of that community that, that Adams would call liberal religion. So this idea that, that whatever may be the challenges. We have, a, we have a right to be optimistic about human destiny. It doesn't mean we have a, it doesn't mean that it's, that every situation will turn out well. That's, that's not the argument because we know that's not true, that every situation. But he's saying we have enough going for us to be optimistic. Is in, a, in a way, this is what Malcolm Gladwell argues in the book David and Goliath that even though we may seem small and powerless and outnumbered and outfunded and all of those things, that there is a David kind of effect, so he argues. And James Luther Adams would agree with that, that 
The chances of David are good, actually, strangely enough. The champions of the Davids, uh, they have a good, a good possibility. And that we have that possibility all the time. And so there's a kind of universalist optimism in his theology and in our movement in general. Adams concludes that the genuine religious liberal in kind of a flurry says can even rise up and join the hallelujah chorus with a sense of optimistic expectation. Not for the arrival of a tribal messiah, but for the difficult but achievable creation of a world of advancing justice and peace. Or in the image of the old story, David can triumph over Goliath, and all of us, actually, can triumph over Goliath. We are always learning. There is no one final answer. Relations between people should always be by free mutual consent and never by coercion. We have a moral obligation to work toward a more loving and just world. Goodness is not just individual. It must be embodied in communities and institutions. We have the resources available to justify being optimistic about creating this more just and loving world. May the wisdom of the five smooth stones be in our hearts and minds And may that wisdom protect us in meeting even the greatest challenges.